David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris, and we have a great show today. A couple of football uh, legends. We will have Anthony Munoz, the Hall of Fame offensive tackle from the Cincinnati Bengals, later in the program. But first up, we have legendary coach Frank Cush, who made a name for himself at Arizona State, also coached in the Canadian Football League with the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the NFL with the Baltimore and Indianapolis Colts. Before that, in college, he was a five foot seven, 150-pound defensive lineman at Michigan State, if you can believe that. And here we go, Frank Cush. You forgot the USFL and the Canadian Football League also. You've been all over the block. I'm all over the countries, right. Exactly. I really enjoyed them all. In fact, we won and uh, the only place I got fired was at Arizona State. And that's where you had your greatest success. <laughs> that's what they all say about coaches, success, start fired, hard. Do you wish you were coaching today with what these coaches are making? No, no. Well, no. No, I, I figure what the reality of life is, you know, the way things have changed so dramatically, militarily, it's... it's you kind of you laugh at it, but again, on the other hand, it was an opportunity when I came out of college to go on and coach, and I had been in the military, <clears throat> and then came out and got the job at Arizona State. Had to hit hitchhike all the way from Fort Benning, Georgia, <clears throat> which is in Columbus, Georgia, to Phoenix City, and it gets Phoenix City, Alabama, then Phoenix City, Arizona, and. Uh, and I came into the went right through Tempe, forgot where the heck I came from. Now, once upon a time, you you were a pretty good football player yourself. Did, yes, did, I was very fortunate. I played at Winbur High School in Pennsylvania, where I made all state. At that time, they only picked eleven guys. And because of that, and having a pretty good academic background in high school, I went on and had different about fifteen offers to go on to college. <laughs> When uh, I went to Washington Lee in Lexington, Virginia, for one semester, and I found out that's where I miss girls. I it's a it was a male student body, and there weren't any females around there. And I thought I better get the hell out of there, which I did. I went to transfer to Michigan State. So did Biggie Munn recruit you, or how did you end up at Michigan? Duffy, State? Duffy Doherty had recruited Duffy Doherty was the. <clears throat> who became the head coach eventually at Michigan State, was an assistant at Michigan State at the time. He recruited Pennsylvania, and he recruited me out of Western Pennsylvania, Winber. And I went on to Michigan State. We were very fortunate. We only lost one game in three years, and we were national champs in 1960. How did you play defensive line at 150 pounds? 
Well, you had to be quick and elusive and don't let anybody block you. Again, I played both offense and defense. At that time, you had to play both ways. And again, offensively, it was all cross-blocking, crap-blocking. You didn't have to be Magilla Gorilla, block a guy one-on-one most of the time, maybe periodically in the past. But as a general rule, it was very, you had to be very elusive and quick. And fortunately, it paid off defensively, and that's where a great asset I had was being able to recognize and respond to a various plays off of offense and get to the ball carrier. Now, your coach there was Big E Munn. He had a, as you mentioned, he had a pretty good assistant in Duffy Darty. He had another one in yeah. a, yeah. a fellow named Duffy Darty, Earl Edwards, yeah, Steve yeah. Siebold. Yeah, they had, they had some great assistant coaches. Duffy had recruited me out of Western Pennsylvania, and Big E Munn was the head coach. And he was a great teaching coach, and they all were great teachers. They had to be in that era, and they still are. I mean, they still have to have that perspective as far as making any advancement from coming out of high school and colleges, being great teachers and disciplinarians. And your quarterback, Willie Thrower, was a pretty good player, too. Yeah, well, yeah Willie Thrower, Tommy Usick, and Al Doral were the quarterbacks at the time. And uh, Willie Thrower was just, he was a... Uh, from New Kensington, Pennsylvania, and he was a senior when he he was a first-string quarterback. We were national champs that year. Another of the uh, Spartan assistant coaches was a guy by the name of Dan Devine. Well, he wasn't there at the time. He was a high school coach at the time in Michigan. Then he went okay. to uh, he he coached as assistant coach at Michigan State after I'd graduated. Then he got the head coaching job at Arizona State, and then Duffy Dory called me, who was the head coach at the time at Michigan State, and said, hey, what are you going to do when you get out of the military? And I said, I didn't know. He said, well, Dan Devine, who took a job at Arizona State, I didn't even know where Arizona was. You don't know Dan Devine. And he, uh, he, he said, give him a call. So I called him, and that's how I got the job. I had to hitchhike all the way from Fort Benning, Georgia, which is in Columbus, Georgia, the south-central part of Georgia, all the way to... Tempe, Arizona. In fact, I went through Tempe, missed the stadium. I was looking for it, and one of the guys that I hitchhiked a ride from, we went by. He, he, he says he's still looking for a stadium. I got about 24th Street in Tempe and found out that I was too far, and I had to hitchhike back to Tempe. You weren't married at the time, I'm assuming. No, no, I was. I was single. <laughs> no, I was single. I was a, 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 a ROTC student. Uh, I ended up being a first lieutenant in the infantry at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then I got married after I left Columbus. How did the military prepare you for coaching? Well, I, I was really impressed with the military from the standpoint of the disciplines and the teaching, etc. They, I thought they did a commendable job. It was Fort Benning, Georgia, which was the infantry school of the United States Army and still is. Is that I think they did a great job of teaching and co- teaching basically the basics and the disciplines and abide by rules and regulations, etc. But I, I thought that the basic disciplines of the military, from starting off from a squad of nine people up to a platoon of about fit, I'd say 27 or so, then company com- company commander, and then. On, on advanced up and anything else, but the teaching I thought in the military was exceptionally good from the standpoint of not only the tactics of Bob warfare, but also the pers- personal touches with the association with people. I remember Dan Devine from his time at Missouri. He was always very organized, 
you know, to the smallest he, detail. He, he was a very knowledgeable coach. He, he was a very knowledgeable, very intelligent guy, and, and he uh, did a commendable job there at Missouri. How surprising was it that he left after a couple of seasons? Because I know he took the job that Frank Broyles had for a year, and Broyles moved on to at, Arkansas. Arkansas. Well, that was typical of the profession in that era. It's here today and going tomorrow and looking for, you know, advancements monetarily and, and recognition, et cetera. So I think it was quite common at the time. And and then when he left, if I understand the story right, you were about 29 and Divine told you that you were too young, even though Divine had been that young when, when he became yeah, a Yeah, he told me I was too young. And, and then when he uh, – and, and I, I – Thought I thought to myself, what the hell is he talking about? He was young himself when he got a job. So I said, I'll show him how young I am. So I took the job at Arizona State College. Yeah, well, and I believe Divine's wife, Joe, intervened at some point to to, to try to straighten Divine out <laughs> about you being yeah, too well, young. Yeah, well, I don't also. think wives are going to straight coaches out. <laughs> that doesn't work that way. Street, I, I think some girl off the street may, but I don't think the wives do. <laughs> What was it like taking over that team? Pardon? What was it like when you became a head coach? Well, I'll tell you what. It was kind of interesting because you had, you know, you're involved extensively in the recruiting, and I recruited back east in Pennsylvania and Ohio and New Jersey. And you had to develop a great association. But the thing that you have to do, remember, I was fortunate to come up from a family where my father was a disciplinarian and the high school coaches I had back in Wimber, Pennsylvania were disciplinarians and great teachers, and I think that was a lesson that I learned there from my dad doing the right thing, and he would show you, he would demonstrate, and then you better do it properly. And again, our high school coaches were the same way. They were exceptionally good teaching coaches and disciplinarians, and they really cared for you. In fact, periodically, I remember like John Kalchak, who was our coach, one of the years our head coach, and uh, the weather was really bad in western Pennsylvania, and they used to drive, and he, he lived in Johnstown, which was an adjacent city about nine miles from Winber, and then uh, the, the weather was so bad that he gave us a ride a couple of times from high school back to our the, the mining town, Mine 35, again and again. But that, that's the compassion that they had, and they really cared for the student-athletes. Student Were you prepared for the, the weather of Arizona? Well, no, I thought I, well, I didn't have to worry about going to hell because uh, coming to Arizona, I thought, what, what have I got myself into? I said, well, you've been kind of a nasty rascal. You just get indoctrinated and what it's like going to be in hell. So that's the way I got involved in it. Yeah, I, I came in through Globe in Miami on a Sunday morning and there's not too many people on the street and there's not too many people in Globe in Miami, period. And uh, I, I, I was awed by the heat. <laughs> Then when I came down in the valley, it got worse, and I thought, man, I'm really in hell. Did you Were you able to use the heat to your advantage? Well, you you made sure that the players were conditioned for it. Right, exactly, yeah. When you say take advantage, I don't think that's the key to it. I think the key to it is, is knowing what it takes to, to be in condition in the heat in contrast to the cool or uh, implement types of weather where that changes dramatically, but again, you had to get them adjusted to the heat because the humidity was so low at that time, and it still is. And, and again, so you had to get them adjusted and make sure it wasn't 
a psychological factor with them, and that was because of conditioning and doing a great deal of running. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, when you were coaching, a lot of people followed the Woody Hayes uh, three yards in a cloud of dust. You had a, a much more diverse offense than that. Well, yeah, I, 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 we had quite a diversified offense. I acquired that knowledge at Michigan State. Uh, Michigan State had the multiple offense. Michigan State College at the time they had the multiple offense, and they used a single wing, a double wing, and T formation, etc., and trap blocking, cross blocking, all the different schemes, etc., and everything else. And that's where I acquired the knowledge from and brought it out here and under Coach Dan Devine. It, it just advanced it because he was a Michigan State former coach also. How did you develop the bull in the ring, Drew? Well, that was just a, a discipline for making mental mistakes. You didn't, you, you made a mental mistake. And physical mistakes, that's part of the game. If there's somebody you're playing across from you that's better than you and is going to block you and does the job properly, that's part of the game. But mental mistakes, that's where you paid the price to get in the bull in the ring. And, and again, you, 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 you want to stay the hell out of the bull in the ring because you got the hell kicked out of it. You've got 10 11 guys. So again, uh, the bull in the ring was predominantly a no mental error consequence. Now, you almost left Arizona State to take uh, the job at Pittsburgh. In fact, you had accepted the job and then you changed your mind. Well, what yeah, happened during they, that time? Well, they didn't. And they didn't have any transportation for the assistant coaches, or the salaries for the assistant coaches was very, be way, way below average. I, you know, wanted to hire guys from Arizona State to go with me, and because of the limited salaries from University of Pittsburgh at the time, it wasn't very feasible at that time. So that's why I changed my mind. You coach a lot of Hall of Fame athletes, Mike Haynes. You had Curly Culp, Charlie Taylor. Was there one player who you felt was the best you ever coached? No, we had a lot of them. We had Danny White, Mark Malone. I guess we were fortunate to have. I think I think we I attributed that to the recruiting process. In addition, to that the great teaching coaches they got had from high school in art. We had great teaching coaches: Larry Cantera, Dick Tamburo. I can mention all those guys' names, Dick Corick, and a whole bit and everything else. And again, I think the key to it is the coaching and the basically teaching whatever word you want to use and then the mental disciplines and I think we had great mental disciplines that we all acquired from our high school careers and uh, college careers. You also had African American players at a time when there were segments of uh, college football that, that really didn't recruit those players. Well, you never said the word African American. You just recruited them because they were athletes and good students. And again, I think that was the key to it. And again, you, uh, you, uh, we went into Pennsylvania. I recruited a lot of kids in Pennsylvania because, uh, at, at that time, geographically and historically, from the standpoint of prejudice, there was, you know, you know, it was it was there. And again, again, you, you got an opportunity to get the kid out of there and bring him out to the Wild West, where it was all about. Cowboys and Indians, in contrast to the blacks of lace. You had Reggie Jackson for a short time on the team, too, right? Who? Reggie Jackson? Yes. Yeah, yeah. he played. He was from Philadelphia. He played high school baseball. He was a great high school athlete. Bobby Winkles was the baseball coach at Arizona State, and, and I talked to Bobby Winkles about him being a great, you know, 
combo athlete, both in baseball and football at the collegiate level. And Bobby Winkles, when I, we brought Reggie out for a visit, Bobby talked to him. He talked to him about playing baseball, and that's when Reggie decided he would like to play both baseball and football. He was a great all-around athlete. Yeah, he, Reggie played at Cheltenham High in uh, in Philadelphia, but I, I think he probably made the right choice with going with with baseball. Well, it depends you? on. He had a lot of success there. Now he was a great athlete. Now he had he had equal amount of success at the collegiate level. And, you know, collegiate level is more of a team sport in contrast to baseball, where it's an individual performance. On a, whether you're whether you're playing. Uh, at bats or out in the field or whatever it may be. Again, so uh, there's no question in my mind that he could have he would have been a great college football player. My favorite quarterback before Dan Marino was Danny White because Danny could just seem like he could get it done. I never understood why he never became a football coach in the NFL. Well, because he's smart enough to know that the coaching profession is very <laughs> questionable, and I think that's why he was smart enough to get. I think he got a degree in the business world, and and then wanted to do the same thing because he got some great advice probably from his dad, Wilford White, who was a great player at Arizona State College at that time, and then played for the Chicago Bears, and I'm sure his old man advised him not to play the hell with pro ball, get a job, and start working. You seem like you had a good run at quarterback. Was there one position you recruited first and foremost? No, not necessarily. We just we recruited athletes, and I think we, you know, I, I think our coaches did a commendable job. We recruited a kid, whether he was a running back or at, you know, say a defensive back, or say possibly a defensive lineman or defensive secondary. And we had great teaching coaches, like our like our secondary coach was Fred Glick, who I thought was one of the most outstanding college coaches, and he did a commendable job of teaching. And Larry Contreras, a defensive coach. And again, we and Dick Corrick, I could mention all those guys' names. They were all individual, exceptionally good. And again, I think that was the reason our kids had the success at the collegiate level. I thought it was uh, one of your key recruits was your kicker when you uh, won in the Fiesta Bowl, uh, Danny Cush. I think I, I knew his mother pretty well. And, I, and his mother used to say, if he doesn't play, you don't play. So he played for four years. <laughs> was that 1975 season? Right, right. Yeah, we played in Fiesta Bowl. He had three field goals. He was exceptionally good. Yeah. Was that your favorite season? No, I, I you know it's it's hard to evaluate and say your fa- favorite season. Your favorite season is the one where you have success and you you, you get the enjoyable and you have a great association with the players. And again, and that was true throughout my career. I I enjoyed it. We were fortunate and. And again, so the whole coaching career, from the standpoint of when I started as assistant coach and on through collegiate into pro ball, is the association with the players makes a difference. What was the difference between coaching college and coaching pros? The quality and quantity of talent at pro sports is remarkably different than the collegiate level. You, the collegiate level, you may have one or two kids on it college team that are going to be potential pro players for and the pro players they're all that way and again very competitive both mentally and physically and again I think the the difference is uh, again the, the mental attitude and I think that comes from the coaching staff 
you know, perpetuating that type of an attitude, what it's going to take to be successful at the collegiate level, the pro level. The quality and quantity in pro sports to me is remarkable. Was it tough when ASU dismissed you? Were you worried about trying to get another job? No, no, it's one thing you didn't worry about. You know, no, no. Uh, again, as I as I mentioned, I had various opportunities, and again, you know, if you're established and you have an association with the institution, the administration, whether it's uh, various coaches, etc., and everything else, and I, I think the key to it is in enjoying it and being successful. And the, the pro ball is a lot more impersonal. And I would assume it's a lot more business, too. Well, well, that's a nice way when I say it's more impersonal. <laughs> At the collegiate level, you're there, number one, get an education for the student-athletes, and then the disciplines. Well, the disciplines first, then the education, and then athletics. But in pro ball, it's all about pro sports. You better be able to do it or it's going to go. You're going to be on the highway hitchhiking. Did the nature of the kids you recruited at Arizona State did that change during the course of your career? Or, or no, no, we we recruited kids, and I think our coaches made the difference from the standpoint of you get a kid from a indigent background or say from a different background and each and others. And I think it was up to the coaches, assistant coaches at the collegiate level, the disciplines number one socially, number two academically, number three athletically. You say were doing the appropriate thing why they were in college because so few of them, I think some like two or three percent are ever going to play pro football. So again, I think the key to it is that developing that association, making them being aware of why they're at the collegiate level. And that's number one was academics, number two was social, number three was athletics. Do you feel that ASU could have done more to support you back in the late 70s when they, you had that issue with uh, the punter? Pardon? Do you feel ASU could have done more to support you when Kevin Rutledge filed that lawsuit? Well, well, that's our society. You know, here they and go tomorrow. I have the less less said, the best said. <laughs> how how did you end up coaching the Colts in Baltimore and then Indianapolis? Well, I went to Canada first. Joe Zuger, one of our former players here at Arizona State, was one of the administrators at Hamilton Tiger Cats, and I'm sure he was familiar about my background when I'd recruited him out of high school in Pennsylvania, in, uh, from uh, Western Pennsylvania and around Pittsburgh. And again, and then he talked to me about the possibility of coming up there, and I jumped at it immediately and got up to Hamilton Tiger Cats and was up there, and then I got the opportunity to go on to uh, the, the Baltimore Colts and the Indianapolis Colts. And, again, I'm sure that is attributed to my association previously at the college level with various pro owners and coaches. And George Hallis, who had been the owner of the Chicago Bears, probably had a lot to do with recommending me to go on to, to – Coach Pro Ball at Cannon and then on down to Baltimore Colts. Did Hales talk at all about possibly becoming the Bears coach? Because he was looking for a coach at that time too. Well, yeah, he was. No, he no, he didn't talk to me. But I, I found out afterwards that he was the one that highly recommended me. And again, I, he never talked to me about going on. You know, a job is a job, and again, that was a profession at the time. Still is. I saw an ESPN special, and they mentioned that. When Elway didn't want to play for the Colts, that the Colts, some of the front office, and I think, I believe it was you, wanted them to draft Dan Marino instead because you felt Marino could be a great player. 
Well, yeah, I, you know, there's no question in my mind that you know that there were there were some great quarterbacks. And those were two of them, and then Mike Pagel, who, who was at Arizona State at that time, was equally as good. Didn't receive the recognition, but uh, we finally took Mike, and Mike did the job. In 1995, you were inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. This, was that is that the culmination of a coaching career? Well, you never think about it when you're coaching. You know, whatever happens, happens. And if you have the success and you attribute that to the players you worked with and the coaches you worked with, and I was forever honored about being selected at that level because it puts you in a, with an elite group of people that probably went through the same mill grind rail that you went through with maybe a high school coach or college coach and then in in, in the pro ball and getting them the opportunity to be recognized for what you did. So again, it was a matter of recognition. I attribute that to the assistant coaches and the uh, players. Was it tough coaching the Colts with them moving from Baltimore to Indianapolis? No, it was the Mayflower midnight move. In fact, <laughs> I was as surprised as Anybody else says, oh man, Ursay, the owner of the Colts, come in on one Sunday and says, we're moving to Indianapolis. And I said, where's Indianapolis? <laughs> but that's the way, that's the way it was at that time. Here they ain't going tomorrow. So, he so brought he the have, truck with him. Yeah, he didn't have you drive in a truck? Yeah, we went in the truck, exactly. He didn't have, he didn't ask you to drive it though. No, I was there with the driver, right? <laughs> He, he was a legitimate uh, mover in transportation of household goods and football equipment in this case. What I never understood was why Elway didn't want to play for the Colts. What was, what his problem was? Well, I think that he, you know, because of the association that Ursay had and how tough Frank Cush was, except for everything else, and and you know, and that was, and he came from a different environment at the collegiate and and going into pro ball. So I think that was one of those mental things that you run across in our society. So his dad, I think his dad kind of babied him at Stanford. Pardon? I think his dad kind of pampered him and babied him at Stanford. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure his dad had something to do with it, you know. Did, did you know Jack Elway? No, I didn't know him personally. No, I didn't know him, no. Okay. So it, it, it becomes a, a matter of Frank Kusher's reputation? As being something I'm sure of a hard ass, right, right. Uh, being, you know, the, the demanding and, you know, being the tough sob, you know. And again, that, and that's that was probably was transferred from the old man to the kid. Who do you think the best player you ever saw play in college was out of all the schools you played against? Well, you know, it's kind of difficult because you had so many. Um, I can mention Danny White and Rick Malone, like the kids we had at Arizona State, Joe Zuger. It's hard to evaluate and com- compare them unless they're competing against each other. And again, I think there were a lot of great collegiate athletes at that era, and a lot of them when I was playing as a player at Michigan State, and then there's still so many today that are great athletes. And again, but the level of competition in, in the quality of competition makes a difference of whether that individual gets a maximum out of what he has. It's a combination of physical and mental capabilities. I'll tell you a guy who probably give you a lot of nightmares or sleepless nights was Earl Campbell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was a great one. How gratifying was it to be welcomed back at Arizona State? 
Well, I, I enjoyed Arizona State. Arizona State was a relatively small college when I came here with Dan Devine in the 50s, and then it progressively grew not only, uh, uh, say, athletically, but socially and academically and became one of the premier institutions in the United States. And then again, it was you know really recognized for the community interest with the city of Tempe and the Phoenix people and the metropolitan area with great supporters of Arizona State Athletics, and we had a great number of boosters that supported the program. And again, I think that's why it made it more enjoyable. How did it feel when they named the uh, stadium after you? Yeah, well, that's there's a lot of stadiums are named after different people. That's part of it. You look up there and say, who's that? Bozo, you know. <laughs> you know I, I just, that's part of the history of the game. Is there anything you miss about coaching? No, I enjoyed it. It was a great opportunity for me to coming out of college and going on coaching in the military and then uh, and then coaching at Arizona State. Again, the opportunities, again, I enjoyed coaching. I enjoyed the association with the players, the recruiting, the whole the whole process of collegiate coach coaching to me was probably the most enjoyable thing. And I'm talking about from the standpoint of recruiting on the teaching and then getting the maximum out of each player and, and being a great you know, disciplinarian yourself from the standpoint of and I love to see people be successful. And again the more success they had then again you feel grateful that, you know, you were fortunate to have that youngster with with you on the team, and we were fortunate to have a lot of good ones. How do you go undefeated and not win a national championship? I still don't understand that. Well, again, the ge- geographically recognition. You know, we were not recognized as a, you know, as a powerhouse in that era. And again, uh, where's Arizona? And you know, they probably thought the drama and coaches were still there. So, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know anything about football players. Well, you would go from the Midwest, let's say Nebraska, all the way to the West Coast, and there's nothing in between there. It's a sort of wasteland of desert and God knows what. Cowboys. Cowboys and cactus and sagebrush. And, you know, that was the the era before you had... The media. media. Yeah, that's before you had ESPN. That's exactly right, right, and and television. Hope you enjoyed that interview that David and I had with Frank Cush. After this brief break, we will be back with Anthony Munoz. You are listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 